calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 399. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, we bring you a trifecta special, three different stories by three different authors read by three different narrators, all around some theme. Our theme here is We Don't Talk Anymore. Those things that come between us. So many of our problems boil down to communication issues, don't they? You're not trying to poison the Atreides royalty, and they're not trying to grab up all the spice trade from you and control Arrakis. Well, I mean, in that particular instance that was happening, but most of the time it's just a communication thing. It's because we're not really talking anymore. Sure, we might be saying stuff, but is it sincere, thoughtful, empathetic? Are we speaking and listening with the intent of understanding or being purely understood? Or is it neither? Maybe we're pushing away from each other constantly because that's been the nature of things since the Big Bang, huh? Isn't this only... Tricky thing is, though, that whole gravity idea, inertia and orbital pull jazz. Whether it's with yourself or with other people, you can't get around ground control to Major Tom, no matter how hard you try and pull away. In space, nobody can hear you be passive-aggressive. We bring you Loving Armageddon by Amanda C. Davis, followed by We Do Not Speak of the Not Speaking by David Steffen, and closing out with One in Four Adults by Catherine Schaefe Stump. Amanda C. Davis has an engineering degree and a fondness for baking, gardening, and low-budget horror films. Her works appeared in Pseudopod, Cemetery Dance, Year's Best Weird Fiction, and others. She tweets enthusiastically at DavisAC1. You can find out more about her and read more of her work at amandacdavis.com. David Steffens, the editor of Diabolical Plots at diabolicalplots.com, and he's been pushing original fiction since 2015. He's also the administrator and co-founder of The Submission Grinder, a donation-supported tool to help writers find markets for their work and track submissions. 
You writers out there that don't know about it should know about it. It's the place to go to find out about hot markets out there that want to buy your work. David also does extensive reviews of fiction and podcasts, and his long list anthology, Volume 4, is now available on his site, diabolicalplots.com. And lastly, Catherine Schaefe Stump lives in deepest, darkest Iowa. By day, she writes fiction for children and adults and teaches English at a community college. By night, she's a masked Avenger known as Horseshoe Crab Woman. I made up that last bit. Her alias is yet to be revealed, but the horseshoe crab beam that projects late into the night sky whenever the darkest parts of Iowa need her most seems hardly whimsical or haphazardly chosen, if you ask me. You can find out more about her at her website, kathshafestump.com. These stories were produced by Drabblecast producer Adam Pratt and read to you by Iba Armancus, Adam Pratt, and myself. So without further ado, we bring you Loving Armageddon by Amanda C. Davis. Loving Armageddon by Amanda C. Davis. She presses her cheek to the center of his chest, listening to the beat of his hand grenade heart. It ticks like a time bomb. But no, he insists it's a grenade, pinned forever almost pulled. And through the skin of his sternum, she can feel the telltale ridges, precise metal squares sharper than bone. She strokes the shallow indents. He shudders. It might go off at any time, he says. A bit warning, a bit bragging. She raises her head, and he shrugs so that his shirt falls closed again. Most of the way, anyway. She says, Do you want to go out again tomorrow? His core may be metal, but the flesh around it flushes, delightfully warm. Every time he tells her how it happened, he has a different story. He was born with no heart, and the obstetrician grabbed the nearest replacement. He was in a car crash and died when he was young. The mortician filled his empty chest with something of the same size and heft, but it quickened and beat, and he was returned to his puzzled parents alive almost whole. He went to war, and the grenade lodged there in a desert firefight. Isn't it the same type his unit carries? He won't speculate. He never dared remove it. The war story can't be true, can it? He's so young. Too young to both go to war and return from it. She accepts any story he tells, then she files the stories in her mind so she can call on any of them when she needs them. He's a lucky accident, a medical miracle, a war hero whichever story she needs right then, so she can love him. Some days, most days, she doesn't think of it at all. There's so much more to think about. Meals, chores, television, jokes and laundry, bedroom, bathroom, smiling, sharing the car, sharing the bed. But when they make love, his heart pounds like cannon fire and she draws him as close as she can so the metal throbs against her own chest, urging its rhythm into her own heart the threat of explosion excites her. She can't ask how it's doing. She can't ask how it feels. That invited, uncomfortable evasion first, then snappishness. It's a ticklish thing. She doesn't always enjoy the threat. The week before Valentine's Day, they have a volcanic fight. It's the kind that sparks from nothing and ranges around the world. The kind of fight that grows so ferocious that it becomes masochistically fun, like poking bruises or picking scabs. 
There's a vile satisfaction in making an Ouroboros out of a fight, jamming a snake's tail down its throat. They are on the cusp of wringing out their past gripes, ready to shatter their future, when, without warning, he takes her by both arms and shoves her away from him into the hallway. Run, he says. It's happening. They only need to lock eyes for her to understand. She flees to the bedroom, the farthest room from the front door, and she hears both doors, hears hers and his slam at once. She crouches on the far side of the room, his side, with her back against the bedside table. She clutches her knees, first shuddering, then shivering, and all of her past and future with him screams through her head like bullets. She waits minutes. More minutes. She hears no explosion. He's leaning against the brick wall by the front door with a lit cigarette between his fingers. He's paying it no attention. She's not sure where he got it. He never smokes. He says, It's really going to happen someday. He throws the cigarette into a snowbank and it dies with an angry, impotent hiss. She knows this is true. She's imagined it a hundred times. In her fantasy, she recognizes it's happening, and she has just enough time to clutch him as tight as she can so they're almost one, jumping on the grenade, and she imagines the burst of metal racking their bodies, the shrapnel cutting escape pass through their muscles and their minds, their flesh singed, their blood mingling. But she has just spent minutes crouching behind the bed. He says, I put it in myself, you know. Replace my heart so I wouldn't have to use it. She files away his story, whatever it takes to love him. She slides her hand into his. His fingers smell like smoke, and in the February breeze, they're as cold as metal, every one. We do not speak of the not speaking by David Steffen. When Cassie stepped out of the general store, she saw a horseman galloping into town like he had the devil on his heels. Now who do you suppose that is? She asked. Jake stopped his rocking chair, but said nothing. His business must be something mighty vital to be carrying on like that. The young man sawed at the reins and pulled his horse to a halt in front of the store. His horse panted fiercely from the exertion of the run. Someone's coming! Someone's coming! Who's coming? Jake asked. The young man didn't seem to notice the question, staring intently back the way he'd come. I'm Cassie, she offered. She'd seen him around, but had somehow never heard his name. The young man looked at her with an odd look to his eye, but still said nothing. Wait a minute! It isn't he who must not be named, is it? She'd heard all kinds of queer stories from her sister, who'd married into this dusty, odd little town. Cassie was only here for a few days to visit. The young man exchanged a look with Jake. Is she serious? The young man asked. She's a foreigner, Jake said, as if it were an explanation. I'm not a foreigner. I live half a day's ride from here with my pa. I've lived there my whole life, in exactly a different country. Foreigner, Jake said. No insult meant by that, mind you. 
It's just the way of things around here. If you live in the town or a nearby farm, you're a townie. Else, you're a foreigner. Ain't nothing more simple. What does my being from out of town have to do with it? Well, Jake said, spitting a wad of tobacco on the stained porch. If you weren't a foreigner, you'd know who he who must not be named is. I do know. He was some evil wizard gun shooter who came to this town ages ago, tore up half the town with exploding bullets before the matron shot him in the head. My sister says he comes back every couple years with glazed eyes and the scabbed bullet hole between his eyes until the matron sends him away again. Jake shook his head. You're thinking of he whose name must not be uttered. Yeah, that's what I said, wasn't it? No, you said he who must not be named. Cassie threw up her arms in frustration. Well, what's the difference? Different people entire, the young man said. Well, who's he who must not be named then? That's me, the young man said simply. Why can't you be named? Well, the matron made a decree when I was born. She was dabbling into fairy magic at the time and heard that if a fairy hears your name, they have power over you. For a few years, nobody was allowed to name their babies because no name meant no weakness. It got mighty confusing, I hear, until the matron told the parents they could pick out names. Why not you? The matron said it was because we may as well have one of us be safe, but I think she had a dislike toward my ma. I hear my ma talk sass at the matron once or twice. Hush, Jake said. I have some respect for the matron. She's twice the woman your ma ever was. Leastways, the young man said, he whose name must not be uttered used to be known as he who must not be named, but when I came around, the matron decided that name worked better for me. Anyhow, Cassie said, obviously it ain't you you're riding ahead of. Is it he whose name must not be uttered? The young man shook his head. Nope. I wouldn't be riding ahead for him. He's not dangerous at all since his bullets ran out. He just charges through town, guns clicking. The only thing powerful about him now is his stink. Who is it then? Cassie asked. She who shan't be spoken of? How did you know about her? Jake demanded, suddenly very intent. My sister told me, but she only knew that name. Why can't anyone talk about her? The atmosphere seemed suddenly oppressive, as if the sky was pushing down on her. The young man shifted uncomfortably, glancing up at the sky. I don't rightly know. We ain't been allowed to talk about her for so long. I don't even know who she was or what she did. Why can't you speak of her, Jake? Cassie asked. Can't talk about that neither, Jake said. Taint safe. Jake darted a glance upward meaningfully. Cassie looked up. A black storm cloud was building rapidly directly above the town, 
surrounded by blue skies. Lightning played fiercely in its depths. Mayhap we could talk about something else, Jake said. He sounded like he was trying to sound casual, but his voice was very firm. Okay, then. All right, I've got one more guess. She looked up again. The clouds were already dissipating into the dry air. Maybe it's it whose existence shall under no circumstances be credited as plausible. Children's stories, the young man said quickly. Yes, yes, of course, Jake said with a glance over his shoulder. Old wives' tales. The clouds dissipated as quickly as they had formed. A cloud of dust was growing over the road in the direction the young man had come from, and he jumped to his feet. There he is! There he is! They all watched as it drew closer. The mail coach? Cassie asked. Yes, the mail coach. I'm expecting a letter from my sweetheart. Didn't you just get a letter from her yesterday? Jake asked. Yeah. And another the day before? Yeah, so... Oh, yeah, Cassie said. My sister was telling me about her. She who never shuts her yapper, right? The young man looked at her coldly. She has a name, Mary, which you'd know if you'd bothered to ask. He turned to Jake. She's rude, even for a foreigner, ain't she? One in Four Adults by Catherine Schaaf Stump Hey, honey. She watched him come in the front door and then turned her attention back to chopping steak, the bloody bits smearing the white cutting board with gore. How was it? He walked into the kitchen and hooked chopped green olives with one finger. Chewing, he took a spot at the other counter and unpacked his lunch. We have to talk. He put the knife in the sink, metal against metal. Frowning at the blood, she rinsed the blade. That sounds serious. She crossed the smooth wood floor to where the tea towels hung and wiped her hands dry. What's going on? Is there a problem? Yeah, well, his eyes grazed the cutting board, then moved back to her. Dr. Banks found something odd. Okay... She swallowed her voice to control it, took a deep breath, and tried again. So the stomach biopsy? Normal. Good, she exhaled. He took out an empty yogurt cup and a plastic bag, throwing one in the recycler and the other in the trash. It's something else. Something else? She rubbed her upper lip. They'd been worrying about the biopsy for two weeks, and it was nothing but a relief that it had come back normal. She blinked. A mole? Hairs. Dr. Banks found some unusual hairs. She laughed. Hairs, huh? Well, you are turning into an old bugger. He didn't laugh, and when she noticed, she clamped her mouth shut. Opening the bottom drawer of the oven, she pulled out a frying pan. Excuse me. She crossed in front of him and retrieved the cooking spray out of the spice cupboard. So, hairs his cue to continue. They're unusual, like wolf hairs. What? 
Dr. Banks thinks there's a small chance that we'll have to watch for lycanthropy. She placed the pan on the burner. Lycanthropy? He wasn't joking. You know there are genetic indicators. Well, first of all, just because Peter Stump is the most famous werewolf in the werewolf books and you're related, I don't think that means you're going to become a werewolf. And he had an enchanted belt, right? That's not a genetic indicator. You know we don't really know what happened there. Yes, we do. A bunch of poor villagers wanted his fortune and decided to kill him. You were lucky his son ran for it. She grabbed a bowl of onions and threw them in the pan, then turned on the burner, the bug zapping sound of the gas lighter igniting a flame. The kitchen smelled like a garage for a moment. He put a fiber bar and a banana in his lunchbox and put it on top of the refrigerator as the onions began to hiss. Lycanthropy isn't all that unusual. Oh, really? Really? One in four adults have hairs like this and don't even know it. She mixed the onions in the olive oil. He was looking intensely at her. No, she was pretty sure he was looking at the chunks of sirloin on the cutting board, which was disturbing. And, he continued, usually nothing happens. They just have odd hairs. Eyebrow hair, hair in their ears, up to their nose. Are you... She pointed at him with a spatula. A small square of onion fell onto the smooth wood floor. Thinking about eating this steak? I was thinking we needed to put the kettle on to rinse the cutting board after you put that in the pan. Good answer. Usual answer. She buried the spatula in onions after another stir and handed him the kettle. He moved closer to her to fill it. So what I'm hearing is that you have some hairs that might indicate you could turn into a werewolf, but you probably won't. Yes. And I'm supposed to react to that how? He lit a burner under the kettle. I don't know. How do you think I feel? I'm the one that might turn into a werewolf. Well, yeah, there's that. She felt like a heel. She kissed him on the forehead. So where do we go from here? She scraped the cuts of meat into the pan, and the fragrance of onion and seared meat hit her on the nose like a cloud of culinary bliss. I'm supposed to take some pills for four months. On the counter where his lunchbox had been was a pill bottle as large as a telescope. Wolfsbane. You can get that at Walgreens? Apparently. I take it four times a day, eight times during the full moon. Anything else? Sure, I should probably switch to a vegetarian diet. She turned off the burner and pursed her lips. Okay, I wish we'd had that information a little sooner. It's supposed to help with any tendency towards bloodlust, honey. I'm, I'm sorry if I, you know, start changing. The tea kettle whistled. He wrapped the handle in a hot pad, put the cutting board in the sink, and poured away the blood. She put a lid on the top of the half-cooked steak and onions. That's a big change, she touched his arm. We'll make it work, though. Beans are awesome. An excellent source of protein, he quoted. Then we just watch. Well, Dr. Banks watches. In another six months, we're going to see if I have more wolf hairs, if my canines elongate. We'll do a DNA test. We'll make sure nothing is looking particularly canine. We'll do that every six months. She stared at him. I don't know what to say. 
I want you to leave me. He grabbed her hands. You've got to leave me. Her chin jutted out. I'm not going to leave you. Every six months is all insurance will pay for. What if I turn into a werewolf? What if I attack you? What if I kill you? He pulled her close. She smelled him, the musky warmth. Life would be impossible without him. She sniffed and blinked. It's not certain you're going to become a werewolf. What if you're just the guy who looks like he could become a werewolf? She smiled. You know, unibrow, furry chest. You've always been that guy. We'll pay for an extra test in between each month if you like. I've got a little extra money put aside. There's no certainty, right? No, none. He stepped away from her, holding her shoulders. But don't you think it's too risky? You might become a werewolf, but you're always going to be the man I married. We're doing this together. If one in four adults have this, there has to be equipment or something at CarePro, right? Whatever wolves need. He cried, and she cried for a time as well. The sun outside their kitchen window dimmed in earnest. Okay, he sniffed. Okay, that's doable. It's a plan. Her eyes were red. The great illusion of normal was something she would work fiercely to maintain, as much as she could. Why don't you get your clothes out for work tomorrow? I'll set the table. He hugged her again ferociously and walked into the hallway to climb the stairs. She uncovered the half-cooked meat, popped a braised red cube into her mouth, and chewed thoughtfully. One in four humans turned into a wolf, huh? Well, the reverse was also true. One in four wolves changed into a human. She'd pretended for so long, she forgot sometimes. That was the real reason they never had her family over. She swallowed, making sure to lick the blood off her teeth. As a carnivore herself, she knew the vegetarian diet was the last thing he needed. It might be time to go paleo. that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. You know, that last one hits home a bit, because it reminds me of my dad and his lifestyle changes after having a stroke. You know what the odds are of having a debilitating stroke at any point in your life after age 25 are? Roughly one out of four. Obviously, there are lots of influences and risk factors, including heredity, smoking, obesity, but sometimes it is just what it is regardless, no matter how much you prune your lupine nose hairs. When my dad got out of the hospital, it was a wake-up call, and now I wish I could make it to the gym as much as that old geezer. Point being, we don't talk anymore is a theme in these stories about communication with ourselves just as much as with others. Our first story reminded me a lot about codependency and how easy it is to almost relish in being manipulated sometimes. Our second story, We Do Not Speak of the Not Speaking, really put in my head a cool Stephen King Dark Tower perspective on the emotional appeal that words, rhetoric, euphemisms, and idioms have on us as persuasive techniques when either used or censored. 
Is it an estate tax or a death tax? Pro-choice argument or a pro-life argument? Noah Webster described the potato in his early editions of the dictionary as one of the cheapest and most nourishing of foods, quote, and greatest blessings bestowed on man by the creator. He was also a potato farmer by trade, just FYI. What is it that's so important we don't talk about or say the right way that sometimes prevents us from even getting to know our neighbors? And of course, in the last one, Hey, sometimes bad news is the good news you needed to hear. Also, your mom's a wolf in mom's clothing. A wolf, if you will. And you will. You know you will. Moving on to our 100-character story winner this week. We have a weekly contest for 100-character stories. We call them Twabbles, and we host it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You can write one, give it a shot, you might be on next week's show. We post the winner early each week on our Twitter feed, at Drabblecast. Follow us there if you aren't already. Our Valentine-themed Twabble winner this week is Swomi Nona. Here goes. Timmy reread the candy heart. You have by less than symbol three. A tear ran down Sue's cheek as he sharpened his scissors to collect her gift. Oh, less than symbol three. That's a sideways heart for you former teeny boppers out there, and totally legit characters for a Twabble winner. Good job, Swomi. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. If you enjoyed our episode this week, and the Drabblecast in general, consider making a donation to the Drabblecast. We are fully supported by listeners and weirdos such as yourself. We pay our authors professional rates, and our artists, and our narrators, and there's other costs involved too, and we couldn't do this without you. You can go to our website at Drabblecast.org and find donation options off there. If you subscribe to the Drabblecast for an automated $10 a month, you get access to Drabblecast B-Sides, our premium content feed. Good stuff happening every month there. If it's in your budget and your exploding grenade heart, we certainly would be appreciative and would never judge you for your lycanthropy. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Always does a fantastic job. Check him out at bokyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Melissa Harvey, Adam Pratt, Zimmerman Bledsoe, Tom Baker, a band-aid drying in the sun by the side of a swimming pool, Bo Kyer, Sandra O'Dell, Jason Smith, Samantha Henderson, Jen Fisher, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, the great illusion of normal is something we work fiercely to maintain as much as we can. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.